Welcome to Move by Grace, the podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio. Good morning, Harvest. I'm glad to have you with us this morning. We're going to open up with a word of prayer together. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we come to you uh, this morning just uh, asking God that you would uh, heal our land. Father, physically, physically, even more so, Lord, spiritually. God, I pray that you would use this time of trouble as a, as a means to turn your people's hearts toward you, that you would heal our souls. Father, we ask that you would send forth your word this morning and allow it to do the work that you have ordained for it to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Normal conversations occur at a level of 60 decibels. Hearing protection is recommended for anything producing noise, a decibel level over 85. Uh, my three-year-old daughter's Ellie's inside voice is around 87 decibels. Jackhammers get up to 95. Motorcycles get up to 105 decibels. My two-year-old Lydia screeches at about 106 decibels, and the roar of a lion can get up to 115 decibels. A roaring lion can be heard up to five miles away. It's the loudest of all the big cats. A lion's vocal cords are especially designed by Jesus to make loud roars without exerting too much pressure on their lungs. Just a little bit of air can produce a thunderous roar. Lions don't usually roar when they are angry. They, they usually attack when they're angry. A lion roars his loudest when he is giving a warning. He roars to warn others to stay out of his territory or face his wrath. And this morning we're going to hear the roar of the Lion of Judah as he warns Israel and the nation surrounding her that they're in danger. They've sinned against him. And he's going to destroy them if they don't repent. So join me in verse 1 of Amos chapter 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Remember from our last message on this book that Amos was called to prophesy to the nation of Israel. He was uh, one of the only few prophets that ministered specifically to the nation of Israel during the divided kingdom. Verse 2, he says, And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. So God is roaring from his temple in Jerusalem. Zion is a hill in Jerusalem, which was the, in the southern kingdom of Judah. And Carmel was a, a mountain, a mountain range in the northern kingdom of Israel. Amos says that God's roar is so powerful, the punishment that he is promising is so destructive that the very pasture land of Israel would mourn when it hears God's word and the heat of his breath will wither the top of the mountains in Israel. There is serious judgment God is about to pronounce on Israel. But it's not just Israel who's going to be punished. Uh, from verse 3 of chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 5, God pronounces judgment on the seven nations surrounding Israel. And this morning we're going to work through chapters 1 and 2 of Amos verse by verse. We're going to speed through the seven nations named and as God has uh, the most to say to Israel, 
this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time as well this morning. So since we're going to be taking this passage verse by verse in order, it should be easy to follow along. And as we begin now to look at these seven nations that Israel is surrounded by, I want you to notice the pattern that Amos uses here as he preaches God's word to them. First, notice the phrase, thus says the Lord. God is speaking directly to each of the nations listed here. And in each case of God's punishment, each case God's punishment is first promised, second God's punishment is proven, and third, God's punishment is proclaimed. So let's look at this pattern carefully in the judgment against Damascus, and we'll move faster throughout the subsequent nations. Uh, so first, God's punishment is promised in the first half of verse 3. It says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So this is an expression of abundance. God is saying that Damascus, that have an overabundance of sin, for three transgressions and for four. And because of this overabundance of sin, God is promising that he will not revoke the punishment that's coming. He's not going to hold it back. Damascus was the capital of Syria. You may remember a Syrian captain named Naaman, who Elisha the prophet said uh, would be cured of leprosy if he would dip himself in the Jordan River three times. In the second half of verse 3, God's punishment is proven. So for each of the nations, God proves their punishment is warranted by declaring one or two of the sins that they are guilty of. So in this case, Syria is guilty of threshing Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Gilead is the name given to land east of the Jordan River. Uh, in 2 Kings 10, 32-33, you can read about Hazel, who was a king of Syria. He conquered those lands and he committed war crimes against the people of Israel. Uh, threshing sledges were a large rectangular plank of wood that had sharp pieces of iron embedded in the underside of the planks. Uh, someone would stand on these planks as they were pulled be behind on an axe over grain in order to separate the grain from the chaff. And Hazel had come up a very, with, a, with a very cruel use for these threshing sledges as he would lay his enemies down on the ground and he would pull the threshing sledges over their backs and the iron would cut, it would dig, it would tear into the flesh of his vanquished enemies. So Syria is guilty of torture. So notice now the third step in the pattern. In verses 4 through 5, God's punishment is proclaimed. He says, verse 4, So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazel, and it shall de devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. Hazel was, a, like I said, a powerful king of Syria. He was often at war with Israel as was his son Ben-Hadad, who succeeded him as a king. So God, when God proclaims the nation's punishment, he tells them exactly what is going to happen to them. You'll notice that he tells all of these nations that he's going to send fire upon them, which is a reference to God's wrath. God is going to pour out his wrath upon them by raising up the nation of Assyria to wield the sword of his punishment. So what's going to happen to Assyria? God tells them specifically, verse 5, I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kur, says the Lord. These are all ways in which their punishment is going to be doled out. And you're going to, going to see similar language used throughout these two chapters. The Assyrians are going to sweep through all of these nations, conquering cities, killing inhabitants, making them vassals, deporting them, uh, making them exiles. 
God says to Damascus that all of Ben-Hadad's strongholds, which were the strongest cities, they're going to be destroyed by war. The gate bar in the walled city of Damascus would be destroyed, which just means the city is going to be conquered. Syrians living in the Valley of Avon would be slaughtered, and whoever was left alive after the war would be taken into exile by the Assyrians. That is God's punishment on the nation of Israel. That's what's coming. So look at verse uh, 6 through 8 where God pronounces judgment on the Philistines. And again, remember the formula. First, God's punishment is promised. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Gaza was one of the five principal cities of the Philistines and represented the entire nation here. Second, God's punishment is proven because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to, Ed to Edom. So the crime they are guilty of committing is that of slavery. Uh, the Philistines have engaged in slave trade with the people of Eden, and Eden's going to get what's coming to them in verses 11 and 12. Third, God's punishment is proclaimed. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. The city of Gaza is going to be destroyed. Verse 8, I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Uh, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Ekron were all prominent cities of the Philistines, and God is promising he's going to destroy all of them. Okay, in verses 9 through 10, God pronounces judgment on the Phoenicians. God's punishment is promised. Verse 9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Tyre was a principal seaport on the Phoenician coast. Uh, it was their strongest and their wealthiest city. God's punishment is proven. It says they be because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of the brotherhood. So God accuses them of being guilty of two sins. They engaged in the slave trade as well with Edom, and they also broke the alliance they once had with Israel. And you can read about that in 1 Kings 5.18. And then God's punishment is proclaimed. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. So Edom, he, Edom's next in verses 11 through 12. So you should be seeing the formula pretty easily by now. God's punishment's promised. Thus says the Lord God, verse 11, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. The first three nations that God pronounced judgment on were neighbors of Israel. Uh, but the last four, beginning here with Edom, they're all related to Israel by blood. Uh, the Edomites, they were descendants of Esau, uh, who, were the, who was the eldest son of Isaac. He was Jacob's twin brother. Now God's punishment's proven. What are they guilty of? It says, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So Jacob stole the birthright and the blessings of, of Esau and ever since then there has been animosity between those two brothers and their descendants. They have a long history of enmity with each other. It was like a blood fuel, kind of like the Hatfields and McCoys. Edom hated Israel and was at war with her as often as Edom's strength allowed for God declared them to be guilty of this hatred. And, you know, if we had opportunity to study their history, there would definitely be a sermon to be pre preached on the sins of unforgiveness and wrath and bitterness. But we don't have time to linger here. So look at the third part of the formula. God's punishments proclaimed. So I'll, verse 12, So I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Teman and Basra were cities of Edom. And God says he's going to destroy them as well. Uh, let's move on to God's judgment on the Ammonites in verses 3 through 15, 13 through 15. Again, first, God's punishment is promised, verse 13. 
Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. The Ammonites are defendants, descendants of Ben-Ami, who was a son born to the youngest daughter of Lot through incest. Uh, you can read about that act in Genesis 19.38. Lot, you remember, was Abraham's nephew, so the Ammonites were also relatives of Israel. God's punishment's proven because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. Uh, there's no other record in the Old Testament that tells us exactly when the Ammonites commit these crimes against the Israelite women and their children, but God knows when they commit these atrocities, and he remembers their guilt. God hates the murder of unborn babies, and he's going to punish those who snuff out their innocent lives. God's punishment is proclaimed in verse 15, 14 and 15. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it should devour her strongholds. With shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Rabbah was the capital of the Ammonite city, of uh, the kingdom, and that city was going to be uh, de destroyed, and the people were going to be sent into exile. So follow me uh, to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where God judges the Moabites. God's punishment, again, is promised. Verse 1, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. The Moabites are the descendants of Moab, who was born to the eldest daughter of Lot through incest, so they're also relatives of Israel. God's punishment's proven. It says, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Uh, this is another scene that we don't ha have any other historical record of in the Old Testament other than here in Amos. Uh, but God saw their sin and he remembers it. Moab hated Edom so much that they dug up the dead body of one of their kings of Edom just to burn the body out of spite. Um, abuse of a corpse is still a crime here in Ohio. It's Ohio Revised Code 2927.014. And I, I only know that because... I, had an inmate in my office recently, not too long ago, that uh, that was the crime that he was convicted of. Um, I don't know exactly what he did to abuse the corpse. Uh, there are some questions I just don't ask in prison. That's just, that's one of them. Uh, God's punishments proclaimed, verse 2. So I will send fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Let's look at the next judgment on the next nation, which is the nation that is closest to Israel geographically and relationally, Judah, in verses 4 and 5. God's punishments again promised, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke the punishment. God's punishments proven. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lives had led them astray after those after which their fathers walked. So this is the first sin against God that is specifically condemned. All the other sins listed for the previous nations have been sins against humanity, fellow men. But Judah is guilty of sinning against God. And God's punishment is proclaimed. So I will send fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. All these other nations are going to fall at the hands of Assyria, except for Judah. And they're going to eventually fall to Babylon later on. Okay, let's turn our attention now to God's judgment on Israel. Amos follows the same basic pattern here, except for two uh, main differences. 
The first difference is that he spends more time proving their sin and proclaiming their punishment. You can see the difference simply by the fact that he devotes 10 verses to Israel and none of the other nations were given that many. The second main difference is seen in the way he inserts an additional component to the formula he's been using in verses 9 through 11, which we're going to spend some time on. But, but first, let's get back to the formula. God's punishment's promised. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment. God's punishment is proven in verses 6 through 8. God declares the nation of Israel being guilty. He explains their guilt by pointing out three types of sins. They're guilty of injustice, they're guilty of inequality, and they're guilty of immorality. So let's look at the first two sins of injustice. Verse 6 says, Because they sell the righteous for silver. So the judges in Israel, who were supposed to administer God's justice, these judges were derelict. They were taking bribes and condemning innocent people of crimes they didn't commit. The second sin of injustice was they sold the needy for a pair of sandals. This means a debtor would be sold into slavery to pay his debts, even if the debtor was so poor that he couldn't buy even a pair of sandals for himself. So it's an unjust nation that perverts justice for monetary gain and forces her poor into slavery. The two sins of inequality are listed next. Verse 7, those who trampled the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. This means that the rich and powerful in Israel, they love to bring poor people into such a miserable condition that it would force the poor people to cover their heads in dust and mourn their condition. So the powerful enjoyed impressing the people beneath them. They delighted in exerting power over them and making them suffer. They loved it. And what's more, they would turn aside the way of the afflicted. So not only did the powerful delight in making people beneath them suffer, but when those who were afflicted cried out for help, they cried out for help and justice and deliverance, the powerful would just turn them aside. They would disregard them completely. Inequality was rampant in Israel. They were a society of the haves oppressing the have-nots. And finally, note the three sins of immorality. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. If you call yourself a Christian and you practice immorality, God's name is profaned. How many of you have ever heard that an unbeliever look at so, someone who calls themselves a Christian engaging in immoral behavior and then say, oh, well, if that, that's how a Christian behaves, I, I don't want to be a Christian. That's what Israel's behavior was causing people to say. Romans 2 says, if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. If we claim Christ as our king, yet we practice immorality, we're leading others to slander God. 
The world is watching us, and we better be walking the walk so that men would see our good deeds and praise our Heavenly Father. Look at the second sin of immorality, verse 8. It says, They laid themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And to understand this, let me read Deuteronomy 24, 10 through 13. It says, When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as, he, as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. So poor people would use their cloaks as a pledge, and the rich would take the cloaks, not return them to the poor, and then use the cloaks to lay on during the feasts. They believed that they were pleasing God by celebrating the feast, but their hearts were far from him. They were full of unrighteousness. They had no fear of God before their eyes. Finally, look at the third sin of immorality. And in the house of God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So the rich and powerful in Israel, they would fine the poor people for crimes they didn't commit, and they would take the money from the poor who they had just fined, and use it to buy their wine to drink at feasts where they were supposed to be worshiping God. Immorality was rampant in the nation of Israel. Now we could spend a lot of time pointing our fingers at our society and finding all the ways that other people are out there committing these sins. Our country is full of injustice, we're full of inequality, and we're full of immorality. And we could wag our fingers a lot of other people, but I would ask you this morning, Christian, to not point your finger at others, but to ask the Lord to reveal to you how you have been guilty of these sins. How do you practice injustice? How do you practice inequality? How do you practice immorality? Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal your sin to you this morning that you may repent. And then confess your sin to your small group the next time you meet with them. Ask them to hold you accountable and come up with a plan to help you never return to that sin again. In chapter 2, verse 5, God's punishment of Israel is proclaimed. In verses 6 through 8, God's punishment was proven. And up until now, Amos has followed the same formula for Israel as he had for the previous seven nations. But the formula changes in verses 9 through 11. In verses 9 through 11, God speaks to Israel in a way that he doesn't to any of the other nations. In verses 9 through 11, God presents a plea for his people to repent. Remember, God was speaking to, to a nation that was guilty of sin. Sin that had infiltrated every facet of their society and infected every person in it. She was corrupt. She was hardened by sin. She was enslaved to sin. She was on a downward spiral leading to destruction, and God wanted her to repent, to repent of her injustices, to repent of her inequality, to repent of her immorality. The clear command to repent and return to the Lord is coming later on in this book in chapter 5. But it's implied here because we know that God is a God that does not delight in sin. God wants them to repent. So how does he plead with them to bring them to repentance? What does God say to a nation hardened by sin and in danger of judgment? He pleads with them to remember what he's done for them. He says, first, remember the victories I've won for you. 
I defeated the Amorites for you. He says, remember the deliverance I have given to you. I've delivered you from slavery in Egypt. He says, remember the help I have given to you. I sent you my prophets and the Nazarite as examples to you so that you may know me and separate yourselves from the world. And this is God's plea for everyone listening whose heart has been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Remember the great deeds that God has done for you. And may those remembrances act as hammer blows to your hardened heart to soften it so that you would turn to him in repentance. So let's examine each of these pleas beginning with verse 9. He says, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Amorite kings ruled over large portions of the promised land uh, when Israel first began subduing it, and they were perhaps the strongest of the nations who resided there. You remember that Amalek were among them, and you remember that, that 10 of the 12 spies who scouted out the land, they were terrified of these men because they were a race of Andre the Giants. There's no way that Israel would have been able to subdue these people in battle had God not fought for them. The Israelites were slaves. They weren't warriors like the Amorite people. Yet God gave Israel victory. The Amorite kings of Shihon, of Heshbon, and Og of Bashan were two of the first kings defeated by Moses. And God pleads with Israel to remember this. Why? Why does God want Israel to remember his victory over the Amorites at this moment in Israel's history? Again, the, the nation of Israel was a mess. It was a nation of broken people who were sinning against each other. They were biting and devouring one another, and they were a wounded nation because of it. When Israel looked at herself, if she only looked at herself... All she would see is the wounds in the nation caused by her sin. So what did God tell them to look at instead? God told them to look at his victory over the Amorites. He says to them, stop looking at your brokenness and start looking at my victories. Why would God tell them to do this? What would have happened for Israel if she had really looked at the victories that God had won for her in the past? What would happen in their hearts if they stopped focusing on their sin and the mess that it had made of their nation and started focusing on the victories of God? What would they gain? They would gain hope. They would have hoped in God. They would have said, we're a mess. We can't heal our country, but God can Look at the victories he has won for us in the past. He can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Let's turn to him and put our hope in him. We're powerless to change our nation, but God is powerful and he can do it. He's given us victories in the past. He'll give us victory in the future. And I would ask, are we, uh, are we any different than Israel was harvest? I know I'm not. When I look at my life, I, I see a lot of brokenness. I'm guilty of all the sins that Israel is guilty of, and my sin makes a mess of my relationships. It hurts my family, it hurts my small group, it hurts the body. You know, and like Israel, we're, we're a church of broken people. We're people who are wounded because of sin. And when we look around at all the wounds in our midst, we look at the relationships being hurt, the walls of division being built up, all the pain that my sin causes others in the body, 
It's overwhelming to look at. And it can easily lead us to feelings of hopelessness and despair. But listen, if, if, if we are only ever looking at our brokenness, then all we're ever going to do is despair and keep falling farther down the spiral of sin. And Jesus is teaching us here that if we would look at brokenness through the lenses of his victory, then we would hope in him. And we would see all the brokenness in our midst simply as God's victories and progress. And we would turn to him for help and run to him for healing. Harvest, we need to stop looking at the brokenness that you are too weak to heal. And look instead to Jesus' empty tomb where his victory is clearly displayed. He's the resurrected Lord. He was dead. Behold, he's alive forevermore. He is the kingdom of an everlasting, indestructible kingdom and has made all of his children his heirs. He has won the victory over sin and death and hell. What all I see is the mess that my sin has made. Jesus says, look to my victory. Stop looking at your brokennesses, brokenness. There's no right relationship that my sin has broken that Jesus can't restore. There's no hurt that sin has caused that Jesus can't heal. There's no wall that your sin has built up that Jesus can't tear down. There's no slave to sin that Jesus can't redeem. His empty tomb proves that he is the king of victory. He has won victory for you in the past, and he will win victories for us in the future. So repent of your sins and don't wallow in despair. Look to his victories, Harvest, and not to your brokenness. Every mess we see is just another victory of his in progress. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So look to Jesus' victories, church, and hope in God. That's what God was telling Israel to do here. And then he says in verse 10, Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. So God reminds Israel of the deliverance from Egypt that he provided. Nothing was more impossible for the Israelites to do than to free themselves from their bondage as slaves in Egypt. So God did it for them. It was a complete and permanent deliverance from Egypt, and God didn't stop there. He didn't de deliver them from slavery and, and then leave them alone to fend for themselves. God personally led the nation and provided for all of our needs. Every morsel of food that touched their mouths for the next 40 years, God, his hand, directly provided it. And the same was true of our slavery, right? We were slaves to sin, and there was nothing we could do to free ourselves from the grip of it. We couldn't obey our, our way free from sin. We were powerless to stop sinning. So God, being rich in mercy, he did for us what we could not, never do for ourselves. Colossians 2.13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. My uh, first uh, personal experience with soul care counseling, 
counseling was counseling that I received on, on Nantucket at the church that Stephan and I met at. I was doing counseling with the pastor there for a while. And I uh, clearly remember him, after talking with him for a few sessions, making his diagnosis of what my problem was. And it's a diagnosis that I keep coming back to because I keep finding myself struggling with the same things that from time to time. He said that I was condemning myself for condemning myself. <clears throat> and that particular summer on Nantucket was the one of many seasons of my life where I, all I could see was my sin. And like a faint mist that over time turns into a thick fog, it engulfs me until all I can see is sin. And all I can see is my failures. And it leads my heart into feelings of inadequacy, insecurity, hopelessness, and fear, which rule my mind until I despair. So constantly looking at my sin and my failures leads me to condemning myself. And then I eventually become so focused on my sin and my self-condemnation that I begin condemning myself for condemning myself. <clears throat> And that's a mess. And it gets harder and harder to find my way out of that black fog once I get into it. You know, Israel was a nation in a thick cloud of sin. They were engulfed by it. How could they ever change? God told them to remember how he delivered them from their bondage in Egypt. And Jesus says to those of us here this morning, going, groping about in that fog of sin and failures, he says, stop looking at your sin and your failures and start looking at my deliverance. Look to the cross where I delivered you from the bondage of sin. Revelation 1.5 says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. At the cross, our bondage to sin was broken. And when we view our sin through the lens of the cross, we say, Jesus has delivered me from this bondage of sin. I don't have to keep living in sin. I'm dead to sin and I'm alive to God through Jesus Christ. So if you're suffering from tunnel vision, this morning, and all you can see is your sin and your heart is despairing, you need to remember the deliverance from sin that God has given to you. Colossians 1.22 says that God has determined before, before time even began to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus' plan for his church is to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Before he even created anything, God planned to conquer your sin by the power of Jesus Christ through his shed blood on the cross. And so we cry out with Paul in Romans 7, 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He delivers us. Your sanctification does not rest on your power. Your shoulders are weak and your back is feeble, but Jesus is strong. Your sanctification rests on Jesus' deliverance that he provided at the cross. So church, you need to stop looking at your sin and your failures. Jesus has delivered us from bondage to sin. Look instead to the cross where his deliverance is clearly displayed. Next, God reminds Israel of how he has revealed himself to them. Verse 11. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it, not, 
Indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. So this is a picture of the help God has given to Israel to bring them into intimate fellowship with him. Throughout our history, God has personally revealed himself to Israel more intimately than has revealed himself to any other nation on the face of the earth. The prophets that God raised up spoke God's personal word to them, telling them exactly who he is and what he required of them. And the Nazarites who were Right, who God raised up to live among the people of Israel. They lived out God's word. They, they demonstrated to the nation what living lives of holiness looked like. So God gave both the prophet and the Nazarite to his people as gifts. And he used them in society to bind Israel's heart to himself. And through those positions, God helped Israel to both know him and to obey him so that they could enjoy intimate fellowship with him. No other nation was blessed that way. And so for Israel, fellowship with God was pretty sweet under the leadership of King David and King Solomon. But once the nation divided, it was all really downhill for Israel. They fell into sin. And since their fall, they've been helpless to stop the corruption running rampant in their nation. Their sin had broken their fellowship with God, and they were helpless to restore that fellowship. And God says to them here, stop looking at your helplessness and start looking at the help I have provided you. So Christian, maybe this morning your sin has made you to feel like God is distant and you can't seem to draw close to him. If you're feeling helpless this morning in your faith, stop looking at what you can't do to help yourself and start looking at what God has done to help you. Remember who God has given to you to help you fellowship with him. God told Israel to remember the prophets and the Nazarites he had given them. And Christian, Jesus is telling you this morning to look to his Holy Spirit whom he has given to you to help you. The Holy Spirit is in you. He is an ever-present help in the time of trouble. He is closer to you than any person you know. He's always with you. So look to him. He will draw you close to Jesus, and he will sanctify you and empower you to live obedience lives. So remember the day of your salvation. Remember the day that you were born of the Holy Spirit who on that day the Heavenly Father gave to you as a deposit that guaranteed your eternal life. He guaranteed, his presence guarantees your adoptions as sons and daughters. His presence guarantees your inheritance as a child of God. He guarantees the kingdom that you are now heir of. He guarantees your sanctification and your coming glorification. Look to the Holy Spirit for your help. He's the great counselor who was ever always working to sanctify us and to draw us deeper into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Stop looking at your circumstances and all those things that you are helpless to control and look to him for the help that you need. So Christian, struggling with sin that so easily entangles, what is God saying to you this morning? Christian, wrestling against your flesh and failing, what is God saying to you this morning? Christian whose heart has been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, what is God saying to you this morning? God told his people to remember these three great works that he worked on their behalf. And God wants you to remember these three great works this morning. Just as he said to Israel, he says to you, look to my victory. Remember Jesus' empty tomb, the greatest display of victory in all of history. Look to my deliverance. Remember the cross of Jesus Christ, the greatest display of deliverance in all of history. Look to my help. Remember your new birth where I put my spirit in you, the greatest display of help I could have given to you. Remember what God has done for you, church. 
And may his great work soften your heart so that you would repent and turn back to him and praise him for how good he's been to you. This is what God wanted Israel to do. But that is not what they did. Verse 12. But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. So God had been calling Israel to repentance for decades and decades, but they refused to repent. For years they had been hardening their heart. For years they had refused to return to the Lord. God asked them to remember all that he's done for them. But instead they forced the Nazarite to drink wine and silence the voice of the prophet. They were, as Romans 1.18 says, suppressing the truth by their unrighteousness. And God is here giving one final roar as a lion does to warn of coming danger. And in these final verses, God is warning them that what will happen to the unrepentant heart. So here is what is coming to you who refuse to repent of your sin. Verse 13. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart is full of sheaves presses down. For the unrepentant heart, there's going to come a day when God presses his weight on you. He's going to press you down under the weight of his discipline. You'll be stopped dead in your tracks when God presses you down in your place. Like an old wooden cart presses down into the earth under an excessive load of sheaves, your bones will creak and groan at the weight of his discipline. You won't be able to squirm to the right or to the left to alleviate the pressure. You won't be able to travel forward or backward to escape the pain until God deals with your sin. You'll be stuck fast in the mud until the weight of God's hand is removed. God is saying that this day will come for Israel if she continues to refuse to repent. There will be a day of judgment where she will be punished for her sin and for her unrepentant heart. And on that day, Verse 14 says, Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. To the unrepentant heart, God says there will be a day of judgment, and on that day you will not be able to escape from his punishment once the gavel is struck, and you will not be able to endure his wrath when he pours it out. You may think you're swift and sure-footed because your sin has not found you out yet, and you have escaped consequences so far, but on the day of judgment, flight shall perish from the swift, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Maybe you're not a tuck tail and run away kind of person. Maybe you think you're strong and that you're strong enough to endure the punishment. But God says that on that day, the strong shall not retain his strength. Your heart of courage will melt before the hot fury of God's wrath. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. Now you may believe that the horse you possess will give you a way of escape. Or the bow that you draw back will protect you. Or the righteousness that you've earned will shelter you, or the money you have will purchase protection from you. God says neither the horse nor the bow, nor, nor will anything you possess allow you to evade God's punishment or endure his wrath. And Christian, our Heavenly Father is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. 
but who will by no means clear the guilty. God's patient with his children. He gave Israel years and years and years to repent before he brought the punishment he promised. But we should never take his grace for granted. Remember, God only gave Ananias and Sapphira one chance to repent. And when they didn't, he took their lives. Don't presume upon God's grace a moment longer. Repent of your sin before God decides to discipline you. These verses are a stern warning from God to his children of their need to repent. But it's also an even sterner warning to those who are not yet God's children. If you're not a child of God, then you need to understand that your sin is leading you to a day of judgment. The Bible says that it's appointed unto every man once to die and then to face judgment. The day of your death is inevitable and it is inescapable. And on that day you will stand before Jesus Christ who holds the keys to death in Hades. He's been given authority to judge the nations. He's the one who sees you as Pastor Nate has been stressing in his study of Revelation. Jesus has seen every thought that you've ever had. He has seen every deed you've ever done. He has seen every motive of your heart. And he is going to bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And under his holy gaze, your sin will be exposed. And in that moment, the strength you spent your life exercising by resisting the will of God, that strength will flee from you. Your knees will buckle, and fear will drive you to your knees and compel you to bow before him. And in that moment, the mouth that you used during your life to declare your innocence and to reject Jesus Christ will be shut and silenced by the law of God as he declares you guilty. And in that moment, the proud heart of yours that you spent your life trusting in will melt in terror as Jesus condemns you to hell for all eternity. And as you suffer in torment in the bowels of hell, there will not be a moment of reprieve from the wrath of God. And there will never be a chance of escape for all of eternity. For the unrepentant heart who rejects Jesus Christ, this is the fate that awaits you. And God pleads with you this morning, why? Why would you die? Why would you die, Cambridge? God has made a way for you to have your sins forgiven. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for your sin. On the cross, Jesus freed us from the bondage to sin. And three days later, he rose to life that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And he has given us his Holy Spirit to all those who repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And that spirit is the deposit forever guaranteeing your forgiveness and your eternal security. It's free. He just asks that you would repent of your sins this morning and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Let his victory be your victory. Let his deliverance be your deliverance. Let his Holy Spirit come to dwell in you and give you his love, his joy, his peace, his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his faithfulness, his self-control. Cry out to him now. Let today be the day of your salvation. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. Repent while you still have air in your lungs. Trust in Jesus before your day comes and you draw your last breath because then it'll be too late. Let's close in prayer. Father, in this time of trouble, I, I pray that you would be softening our hearts, bringing us to our knees, 
so that we would repent of our sins. Father, for those who are listening this morning and who don't know you, God, we ask that you would bring them to repentance and grant them saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio, check out our website at harvestcambridge.org or like us on Facebook at Harvest Cambridge. You are loved.